Welcome to Winning Is Not Everything, where we bring sanity back to youth sports by focusing on character development, effort, and sportsmanship, not rankings and trophies. I'm your host, Sean Jensen, former NFL reporter, children's book author, and youth sports coach. I'm conflicted, truly conflicted. What you are about to hear right now has been one of the most challenging conversations I've had since hosting Winning Is Not Everything. And for that, I'm grateful. Stick around to find out what I'm talking about. Team Snap is the presenting sponsor of the Winning Is Not Everything podcast. Start your 2024 sports season off right. The Team Snap for Teams app provides the tools you need to manage your team with ease. This includes the all-new fundraising feature, which makes raising money for new equipment or your next tournament simple, built right into the Team Snap app. Or maybe you run a full league. From registration to scheduling to helping you build your club's website, Team Snap for Business has the tools to take your programs to the next level. Learn more about all of Team Snap solutions at TeamSnap.com. There's nothing traditional about Tom Beyer, not his childhood stories, including some hard ones I didn't share, not his pathway to professional soccer, and certainly not his remarkable career. But his learnings and insights were taken to yet another level after an epiphany he had about soccer development and ball mastery in working with his two boys when they were toddlers. Yep, you heard that right, toddlers. Before we jump into part three of my conversation with Tom Beyer, I encourage you to open your mind and challenge your preconceived notions. I know I had to. Let's jump in. I mean, America was spotted like a couple of decades, right? I mean, ahead of everybody else. Right. The Title IX, all of that, you know, I mean, it obviously that was a game changer, right? And also, but aside from the U.S., if you look at the early adapters or the early supporters of the women's game, those were usually countries where women enjoyed a higher status or standard of living, which they should, obviously. But you're talking Canada, Germany, Scandinavia, they're the ones that are doing so. Very good point. And then if you look at now, why usually football or soccer development is incremental, right? And you see here, you start seeing some good signs. Oh, they're performing good in the 17s and under 20s, blah, 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 blah. No, Europe has made a giant jump, giant step forward. And I think one of the major reasons why is because very simple. It's exactly what I talk about every day. It's culture. So these girls now... They're marinated in a football culture. They don't just play like the American girls do. The American girls play. They don't watch. They don't sit home. Oh, I can't wait to get home to watch the game at seven o'clock at night. So they're not getting the tactical part. They're not getting the system part. They're not getting. So they're, they're losing that. And so in Europe, you do get that. The little Spanish girl is sitting around the dinner table and she's listening to the grandfather, the father, the uncle, the brother, the sister, and it's on TV and they're white. Okay. You get on the taxi. From when I, when I was in Italy uh, last time in Rome, I just so happened to get in a taxi from the airport on a day that AS Roma lost a game. And I asked the guy, and I asked the guy, like, kind of, you know, hey, hey, so how's Roma doing? I hadn't realized. Well, for 30 minutes, all he did was just tear apart. And these people, these cultures can thrive in such a sophisticated manner with the vocabulary better than any American A-license coach can do. Okay. So that's culture. You can't buy that. 
So these Great girls, point. though, here's another in- interesting thing. Anson Dorrance, winningest coach in the history of the NCAA tournament. Intellectually, he's a very honest guy. He's a lawyer. A lot of people don't know his background. He's traveled the world. I think he was born in Mumbai. His mom and dad were expats, like, you know, working in China and lived in Indonesia. He's been around the world, right? He's, a, you know, first head coach of the women's national team. But he knows the warning signs. And he has been in a panic for about 10 years because he knew that this day was coming. Yeah. In fact, can you imagine a guy that's one, is the winningest coach in the history of the women's game, 22 national tournaments. You know, even this last World Cup, every World Cup, he's got at least three, four players, not only on the national team, but now they're like the head coach of some of the national teams that are winning, you know, in England or in other country, Holland. They're the coaches. They're all coming from his college. Some of them are. And mm-hmm. Anson Dorrance believes that he's, his legacy is not secure unless he brings our program to North Carolina. That's the reason I'm in North Carolina. The 50 state, the 55 state associations, North Carolina is our model. And so he understood, he knew what's behind the curtain. So here's a real quick story. You might've heard it before. A couple of years ago, before the pandemic, I, I have a very close relationship with him. I would just fly in just to hang out with, with Anson for a couple of days and then I'd leave. Stayed his home in his basement. And so one dad show up and he goes, hey, come to training to today and check out. We had, he had some like new facility that they were using while building the st- uh, new stadiums or refurbishing. He goes, I'm going to be busy in the morning because I've got an English family. I'm trying to recruit their daughter. So I go there, get my rent a, rent a car, drive over. And I get there and there's an English family there. Turns out to be like the girl that scored like the golden goal in the World Cup for England. And his striker is from England. His defender is center back from England. So dinner time, I go to Anson. I said, Dan, Anson, what's with all the English girls? He goes, man, they're so much more tactically aware than the American girls are. And I said, well, why is that? And then he used a phrase which I stole from him. He says, they're marinated in a football culture. That's all they do. Hmm. And so yeah. what he does now is he makes all of his girls subscribe to watching football and analyzing it as part of their kind of development. And it makes sense. And when you look at here, check this out. How do the Spanish girls play? Or how does Spanish football play? Very simple. Culture. Kill the bull or be killed by the bull. That's it, man. And that's Spanish football. How do the Italians play? They play like the gladiators. Keep them out. Defensive. Keep the ball. It's all connected. How do the Brazilians play? Pretty easy. Receive the ball before you pass it. You're kind of a little sissy if you don't beat one or two players. So all of this is all, <laughs> it's all culture, man. Tom, you really tested your own belief system in the development of your own children, right? I mean, in terms of the ball mastery, starting at the age of two, I mean, you really pushed that envelope much earlier than maybe you had before. Tell me about your son, because I've heard in an interview that, and I saw a clip, I think, in the 60 Minutes, but he looks like a very confident player with the ball and looks like he's going to be a good player. You have two boys, first of all. Yep. And yes, that was another one of those defining moments in my entire career where I thought I knew a lot and then I realized how dumb I was. And so, and when I say that, I was always working with other people's kids for decades, right? I'm a purely a technical coach. I understood the importance of technical development. That was a no brainer, but it wasn't until I had my own kids. That was the awakening. That was the epiphany. That's what changed my life. And so what happened was, is that because I'm a technical coach, I placed all these little balls in around my home and I discouraged kicking with my, my son. And I did that just because I knew the importance of ball mastery, but I never, ever went into it 
thinking I'm going to document it, I'm going to become possessed with the developmental models around the world, that I'm going to try to create this philosophy and methodology and, and, and try to, you know, create a movement around the world. I never thought that. So it really did happen purely organically. In fact, I have many more videos of my second boy than I do of my first boy because I, I wasn't going into the idea of, of creating this methodology, right? But yeah, that was the big awakening. And a couple of takeaways were when you introduce a small ball to a small child, first of all, that's a no-brainer, right? Because most at the entry level, and I, I kind of, I think, created this kind of terminology of like entry level, right? Well, what is that? Okay. Mm -hmm. Before you cross over the line into organized play, which is usually around six years of age, where you actually join the competitive game. So anything before that. I'm doing a lot of study too, but I was just like very lucky. I don't know if it was lucky or my curiosity more than anything was that I wanted, I wanted to find out, well, why is there only a handful of countries that are developing really, really top players that are like, they call them technically gifted. He was born with it, but it's a bunch of baloney. Most of them have just come in contact with the ball early on. So I started to, you know, science, the beginning of all science is observation. So I was able to observe and Steve Jobs said, you can only connect the dots looking backwards. You can't connect them looking forward. So I started looking backwards, all the stuff I was doing at my schools, my camp, my TV show, my DVD, this, that. I was seeing that in our schools, the best kids, most of them, they were pretty good already before they came to us. We make them better, but the turning point wasn't they came to our schools, at least in the beginning. So I started connecting these dots and I started to see how interested my son became with the ball. And then I started to see him doing some kind of little complex movements with the ball that just blew my mind. And then so I realized that I thought, well, count kicking is like the entry level net. So I started going around Japan. I've got the, all this data and this content. And I started to observe in parks, like what are parents doing when they have a ball? It was the same thing, man, two things. They're either kicking the ball back and forth. It's usually a big ball. They're just kicking it back and forth. The kid's running around. And usually I can see and I can basically predict when the kid's going to just sit down and stop. I just did this the other day, actually, a week ago with some friends and they were shot. Or they're in a bowl area and they're just kicking the ball. Or if a father's played a little bit, he's usually playing one versus one, but he never lets the kid touch the ball. Okay. So those are the three. So when I started to see my son, all the things, and I, at the time, you know, he was very small. So we had, as most families do, there were toys everywhere stacked up to, and you know, kids play with them and then they become bored. But they never got bored of playing with the ball. Mm. And then the bigger, bigger, really big breakthrough was my connection to Dr. John Rady from Harvard Medical School. And what happened was is that he, he tracked me down and sent me a message through Facebook Messenger saying, I'm John Rady. I wrote a book called Spark. Of course you did. I read it. It's a bestseller. It sold millions of copies. I was, in fact, there's a little besides that. I thought it was a bunch of friends who were pranking me that this guy was like even contacting me. I didn't think it was him at first. So it ends in a conversation for an hour. And I told him I wrote this manuscript for the book, 2015. He said, can I read it? I sent it to him. Bro, that was my biggest breakthrough in my life because he loved the content of the book. And so he offered, he wrote 13 pages for my book. I've got the world's most renowned neuropsychiatrist who's teaching at Harvard Medical School, and he wants to contribute to my book. So he writes 13 awesome. pages. We break it up into the forward and the app. If you haven't seen and read the book, I'll have a copy sent to you. But what he did was he connected a lot of the dots I would have never connected them. And he has contributed more to football or soccer development than any non-soccer football guy could probably do. Because what he did was when I started to show him the videos of my kids inside the hole, 
yeah. he started to connect it all, man. Wow. And, and that's what was the big wow. breakthrough because now I understand and I can sit in a room because I do it always and I can actually explain the neuroscience of what's happening in the brain what's happening in the body, what the interaction between child and parent is, what does it mean to be in a home and doing that practice. And that is mass, massive, massive to understanding why and how children develop skill or how they acquire skill activation, which is a big hot topic in all sports. And most do not understand it. They don't understand it. So that was a, that was a big thing. So fast forward now. And I don't think that it's a flu that I've got two boys separated by four years in school, both of them number 10s, both of them captains of their teams. So I started to see a bias and manifest. So here's my kind of elevator pitch. If you can get a child comfortable and competent with a ball at his or her feet before they cross over the line into organized play, you, you said it earlier. The biggest problem is that people don't know what the problem is. That becomes the biggest problem in the hurdle. So nobody gets it. They don't understand it. So when I started studying and documenting to a 11 part series in Australia that I filmed together with Optus, which is the world test broadcaster 2018. And I, I did my homework. I researched Messi, Ronaldo, Suarez, Iniesta, Neymar, Pomba, Lewandowski, Cruz, Kane, Rodriguez, and Modric. I hit them all. All those 11 players, the threat, very simple. All started between the ages of two and five at home with the dads and sometimes the moms. Finished. So when you see those threads and you start understanding, what does the development pathway look like? I guess my biggest asset is, is that I understand deeply the journey between grassroots and national teams. I see it all because I've been able to fortunate to work in those spaces and work with kids that actually go on to win World Cup tournaments and become captains of the national team. So when you have that perspective, I call it, it's the truth, man. I've got the truth on my side. I know it. I understand. I know what I know because I've done it. I'm not a theorist. I don't sit there and say, well, you know, I can go around the world and, and do courses on things. And no, I've done it. I've got real life application and I've seen it, what it does. So that's why when I hear these theorists and people who have the next best fix on football development, I'm very cynical about it because I know what I know because I've done it. And there's nothing more powerful than actually experiencing it, right? Experience it. Yes. So yeah, that's what, that's really what it, now my boys fast forward now. Yeah, technically super strong. And there's a bias that manifests in a really positive way. If you can get kids comfortable with the ball, what happens? Okay, so if your little six-year-old is really good technically, the first day you drop him or her off at the park, two things are going to happen. That kid's going to become really popular with the other players. Mm-hmm. And that kid is usually going to become the leader. That's it. And both my kids. And why? Here's why. Because when the coach says two to ball, three to ball, five, eight, they all look to see where the good kid is. And they all run to the good kid because they want to be with that kid. Or Sorry. when the coach wants someone to demonstrate, hey, where's Taito, my son? Oh, oh, where's the good kid? So now a little six-year-old is getting the experience of leading a pack of other Six-year-olds, 20 of them. So that's a leadership quality So and confidence. So I just started to see all those sayings. And then I also saw that with my kid's team, here's the thing that people always do. It's funny. The coaching here in Japan is not that good at the grassroots level. <laughs> it's not everybody. You know, it's so funny because Asia, they send over busloads or charter full of planes or people to come over here because they think that Japan's got this magic silver bullet that they're going to learn from from some like coach or like coaching session doesn't exist, man. Doesn't exist. <laughs> the culture is such here. 
It doesn't exist, but that's the whole indictment of football development. They think that in the traditional sense, development happens between a very experienced coach and a player with a big ball. They don't see the, what happening aside from that. Now, I saw that my son's team, my first son, Kaido, when he, I dropped him off at his first training session and I started like, to, it's, bro, my son's school is right out the window. I'm pointing. I can see it if I stand up. The junior high is out this window. I can see that one, dude. So they just walked wow. to school. So but here was the kicker. So I can go watch training all the time. So the kicker was this. I used to go in the beginning and I used to tear my hair out. I was like, oh my goodness, what did I do to deserve this? I'm the guy, I'm on national TV every day. My DVDs and books are bestsellers. And the coach of my son's team never played soccer. He volunteered because he was one of seven girls, fathers, and the guy came from a strong rugby background. Very nice guy, professor at the yeah. University of Tokyo, but here was the takeaway. In the beginning, I was kind of thinking, oh my God, what did I do to deserve this? But then if you think about it, this is sports. The soccer is the, you know, good, you know, the development is based upon the access to, is depend upon quality of the good coaching. Now you just might live there or you might live next to it. So anyway, it's a hit or a miss, right? Depending upon where you live. But then later on, and even more so today, I tout that coach as a master coach. And the reason why is because of this. When you've got a kid who's already good technically and comfortable with the ball and you pass them over the line, they thrive because the coach didn't know much about coaching. He never overcoached him. So he just let him play. So that's the old cliche of everybody says, oh, you know, the game's a teacher. Just let him play, roll out the ball. Yeah, it happens with kids that have learned the basic building blocks to be able to scaffold and build the more difficult skills in the game. And that happens by themselves. Skill was, never will be the result of coaching. It's a love affair between the child and the ball. Roy Keane said that. So those are some of the things that I started, to, anecdotal things I started to learn and experience in my own family. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Winning Is Not Everything. Please make sure to like the podcast and subscribe to the podcast so you can immediately get the latest episode. If you have any questions or comments, please visit my website, seankjensen.com and go to the contact page. You can even leave me a voice recording. And of course, I want to thank my presenting sponsor, TeamSnap. Whether you're coaching a team or running a full club or league, TeamSnap has the solutions and the technology to keep you organized this year. Until next time, I'm Sean Jensen. Okay.